You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, our audio supplement to the Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs blog about the science, art, and popular culture of mostly Mesozoic life. I'm Natine. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. In episode 7, I'll be joined later by Cameron Clow, a paleoartist and recent graduate who is already working as a visual effects creative behind some of the most popular media properties. We also managed to sneak in a brief word on another of our shared passions aside from dinosaurs, but still within the podcast's remit, of course. Find out what that is. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art book under discussion is John McLaughlin's Archosauria, A New Look at the Old Dinosaur, published by Viking in 1979. But before we open with the Paleosphere news, I would just like to give a shout out to Bri Bolman of the Neo-Jurassic podcast, who very kindly gave us a shout in one of his recent episodes. Uh, Bri is a self-confessed obsessive of the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World films, but far from being an uncritical fan tribute to the franchises, uh, Neo-Jurassic is more interested in exploring the film's premise of a world in which dinosaurs have indeed been resurrected and such things as real functioning dinosaur parks exist. Uh, The podcast also features interviews with respected science communicators and paleoartists who share their thoughts on these, according to the tagline, wild possibilities. So do please check it out. And so on to the paleosphere news then. Uh, Who would like to come in first? Yes, um, abelisaurs. I'm sure we are all uh, familiar with them. They are these um, fairly strange ceratosaurian theropods, which are... um, mostly known for uh, basically dominating the southern hemisphere uh, around about the end of the Cretaceous, the best known being, of course, uh, Carnotaurus. So you know the ones, right? Pretty low-slung bodies, um, very tiny, tiny, stumpy arms. Oh, yes. Much tinier than those of Mm T-Rex. Well, um, until recently, we basically thought that these abelisaurs were sort of um, a late Cretaceous offshoot of the um, ceratosaurians, but uh, turns out th- th- probably, they probably were around for much longer than that. Um, they have found, and when I say they, I mean uh, Oliver, I hope I'm saying this correctly, Oliver Rauhut et al. They found what they believe to be some um, abelisaur remains from Argentina from the late Jurassic, so quite a ways earlier than... Uh, most of the abelisaurs we're familiar with. They are from the Cañadón Calzareo formation, which is late Jurassic. So, um, yeah, they are, if anything, earlier than all the uh, Morrison dinosaurs that we're familiar with, including Ceratosaurus. And um, because we also have a candidate for Abelisauridae in the Tendaguru formation in Tanzania, of course, which is where... Uh, Giraffe Titan comes from, the famous Brachiosaur. Um, these authors hypothesized that Abelisauridae was actually quite widespread already, at least in the Southern Hemisphere, from the late Jurassic onwards. So, um, yeah, this is actually a group of dinosaurs that was around for quite a while. Fantastic. So, sorry, how much of this new animal has been actually found? Uh, is it very fragmentary? or? Yeah, it is indeed very um, fragmentary. Um it's two specimens of medium-sized to large theropods. Um, they don't name them. They say it's Abelisauridae in debt, basically. Right. Uh, very fragmented. Yeah. Uh, an isolated and rather well-preserved anterior cervical vertebra, so a single vertebra, and a very fragmented but associated assortment of bones, including cranial and vertebral remains. So, yes, yeah, scraps, basically. But okay. they know enough to um, hypothesize that they're Abelisauridae. So that's interesting. Yeah, I must, I must admit, this one passed me by. So I was <laughs> interested. I didn't know how much of it they'd actually found. But um, I did imagine it would be... Fra- well, obviously, first of all, most dinosaur remains are fragmentary. But yeah. secondly, I probably wouldn't have been able to avoid it if it was more complete. I probably oh, would have yeah. just been splashed up everywhere. Undoubtedly. Like, oh, my God, look at this thing. But... Um, it's interesting that they're now going further back in time. Although, of course, logically, I guess really they must have done. They didn't, they didn't just appear from, from nowhere. But uh, <laughs> it, it, and there's enough there to determine that there's definitely a relation to the um, Abelisaurus. And you're saying earlier than Ceratosaurus. 
as well. Yeah, because is... the formation is Oxfordian, so that's um, one sixty million years yeah. ago. And um, Ceratosaurus itself is a bit later. That one would be um, yeah. Kimmeridgian. Kimmeridgian to Tythonian. Spankian to Arsian. Okay, I, I can't say any of these, um, <laughs> these names either, to be honest. No, I'm just reading these, man. I'm just reading like these. Like <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what do you have for us? Well, I've got a lovely little paper that was published um, only yesterday at the time of recording. So June the 23rd, 2021. And it is Rare Evidence for Gnawing Light Behaviour in a Small-Bodied Theropod Dinosaur, published in PJ, Life and Environment, um, under obviously Paleontology and Evolutionary Science. And it's written by Caleb Brown, Darren, Ta- Darren the Tank, and David W.E. Hone. No one knows what those middle initials stand for, but we know, we, we know him as Dave, um, our, our good friend Dave Hone. Shout outs, shout outs to the um, <laughs> Terrible Lizards podcast. Terrible Lizards podcast with Izzy Lawrence. With Izzy Lawrence. And yes. Dave was interviewed um, in episode three, of yes. course. Yes, we interviewed him. Um, lovely guy. He was, uh, yes. Um, anyway, this paper is about a, a pedal angle and it had some marks on it. But not just any marks, you see, because they analyze them and, and uh, they thought these look an awful lot like tooth marks from a small theropod dinosaur. So they took lots of analysis in this paper, um, like analysis that seems all, like to the degree that it almost seems comical to a mere layman, There's the extent to which they analyze these things. But you can't argue with them being that you can't argue that they weren't thorough. They were really, really thorough. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, they come to the conclusion that most likely explanation is of some, well, some small, either, a, well, either a very young, very young Tyrannosaur. And they, they look at the... Um, Tyrannosaurs that are known from this formation, they say, "Well, we haven't actually found one small yeah, it's enough." It's the dinosaur park, isn't it? So it would have been uh, Daspletosaurus, Gorgosaurus, those animals. They, exactly, and obviously, various juveniles of the tyrannosaurs are known, but none small enough to have done this. It, but that doesn't mean, obviously, not every ontological stage is actually known. So, some of the very youngest babies could have still potentially done this. Um, obviously, the other candidates that they propose are dromaeosaurs. Sure. And then they talk about some behavioral hypotheses, um, including incidental contact while feeding. I'm just reading out the subheadings. Um, <laughs> and um, they, they come to the conclusion that the most likely most likely um, explanation, not, not necessarily the correct one, but the most likely, most parsimonious explanation is that it's something um, attempting to gnaw on or sort of dislocate this toe um, as a very late stage of carcass consumption. So it's something that's trying to gnaw its way, maybe a bit of pulling as well. Yeah. So, so this this little this little theropod was gnawing on a hadrosaur toe, right? Just uh, possibly to get the, the the smallest scraps, the, the the last edible scraps off of that carcass. Yeah. Well, not even the toe, but the toenail, pretty much the claw on the end of the toe. Yeah. The um, so it's um, yeah, an ungle. So a very unappetizing part of the yeah. carcass. Makes you wonder what exactly the animal's trying to do. Gosh. What I found interesting um, about the paper was not just the conclusion, but the actual premise, because apparently this sort of behavior is not very common among theropod dinosaurs. No. And mammals gnaw on bones all the time. I, I was quite surprised to learn that dinosaurs mostly don't, because T-Rex does, and T-Rex is kind of famous for it, but no other dinosaurs really do it, apart from the large tyrannosaurs, which this potentially might have been. I suppose it's to do with the way that a lot of these theropods are processing food in that they don't have the yeah. the dentition to do that. Whereas, well, obviously, tyrannosaurs, the big tyrannosaurs do because they have those bone-crushing teeth, the killer bananas, if you want to call them. Whereas most <laughs> sort of allosaurs, for example, have these blade-like teeth, uh, which aren't really suited for that sort of thing. Tearing flesh, sure, but not uh, crunching through bone. Um, so... Yeah, whereas, whereas there are quite a few mammals that do have dentition that can, uh, you know, and powerful bites and that are able to do that sort of thing. Yeah, it's interesting that we don't know about many dinosaurs that were capable of that as opposed to mammals and why that should be. That's probably a question for another another paper. <laughs> All right. Well, it's not often that I'm having to choose between two items of hadrosaur-related news to report. And my thanks again to Niels for bringing both to my attention. But hey. instead of... a new- 
<laughs> instead of a new genus this time, I've chosen the one about the aging hadrosaur. Uh, in the paper, Dinosaur Senescence, a hadrosauroid with age-related diseases brings a new perspective of old dinosaurs by Swoviak, Zygielski, Rothschild, and Surmik. Uh, the authors present a late Cretaceous hadrosauriform, Gobihadros mongoliensis, which, according to the abstract, show features of cessation of growth indicating attainment of the terminal size. Moreover, this is the first non-avian dinosaur with an age-related pathology recognized as primary calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease indicating its advanced age. Uh, it's uh, it's particularly fascinating because um, while there are clear indicators of age for dinosaurs, such as fusion of skeletal elements, bone microstructure, number of teeth, developed display structures, and so on, um, non-avian dinosaurs, uh, according to the paper's introduction, tend to show a mosaic of features which hamper their age estimation. And the classification of ontogenetic stages sometimes depends on the author's interpretation. There is also much ambiguity in the terms given to the later ontogenetic stages, from fully grown to old adult to senile. You know, it's basically it's hard to determine um, how large a, a dinosaur grew up to because of so much variability in size. And um, yeah. And we also know that um, that that living reptiles uh, continue to grow, even after having reached adulthood. Um, but essentially, this Gobihadros uh, they discovered had indeed reached its full size. Um, it had stopped growing, and instead uh, had reached the stage where the deterioration due to age had set in. All indications point to this being a very senior hadrosaur indeed, whose uh, secondarily remodeled weight-bearing bones and non-traumatic, non-contagious bone pathologies are consistent with advanced age. Wow. I mean, it's amazing it lived that long. That's basically it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's incredible. These exactly. These animals live rather you know, relatively short, brutal lives most of the time. Um, I mean, especially the theropods, because they were all... Uh, precisely. They were involved in a lot of violence. No, no, you're right. The authors do do say this, that um, because uh, what what can now be regarded as a senile dinosaur, uh, according to, to their estimation, um, are very rare in the fossil record because of precisely the things you just mentioned, you know, predation and so on and so forth. And um, Yeah, but it's good to know that we now know what a very old dinosaur or at least a very old hadrosaur would look like yes and uh, for the particulars uh, we refer you our listeners to the paper which happily is open access and we'll of course include a link to it in the show notes and so on to our vintage dinosaur art book vintage dinosaur art uh, john mclaughlin's archosauria a new look at the old dinosaur I wonder, Mark, if we might begin with perhaps the most notorious hypothesis from this book, that of the hump-necked ceratopsians. Yes. Well, it's a bit mean to begin on that, given how prescient this book is in so many other ways. I mean, obviously, it was following, um, or uh, McLaughlin was following the backer in so many respects, and some of the others who were. But he also he also had a, quite a few hypotheses of his own, and he went further in, in other areas than, um, than even backer did. And this is one such example where... He did get it wrong, um, and he did go a bit too far. And, named, and it's possibly the most famous, um, <laughs> most famous idea from this book, simply because it appears so crazy and you know and out there and wacky. And yes, it's the humpback ceratopsians. Not just that, but the um, ceratopsians that have gigantic jaw muscles that stretch all the way from their jaws over their frills and then out onto their necks. So the entire frill is just covered with this massive mound of musculature which gives them a very very bizarre appearance and it sort of sort of ignores a few things about their anatomy like how is the head supposed to move because the head is on a kind of ball and socket joint um there's a lot of maneuverability there so how is it supposed to move if the frill is anchored in place by this muscle how do all the um the bones around the edge the margin of the frill work especially on things like Cyracosaurus, <laughs> you know, uh, it has this huge sp spine sticking out. But even on things like Triceratops, how do those um, how do those bones there um, 
epicipitals there. How, how, how do they work? Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense. And also, some of these animals had um, frills, so their skulls are actually wider than their shoulders. So it make absolutely no sense for them, for them somehow to have their head locked onto their shoulders. You know, what with muscles sort of tapering back. To me, it, it doesn't. It doesn't really make sense. But yeah, we 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 needed to get that one out of the way first. We had to get out of the way. Exactly. Yeah. I do want to say that it's it's not at all out of meanness, as you suggested, Mark, that I wanted to start uh, with this, but just because it's so uh, it's so extraordinary. And you know, it's 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 so synonymous with this book and with this artist. Exactly. But you know, like like you say, Mark, this is it is well trodden uh, territory. Darren Nash over at uh, Tetsu the blog uh, recently. I say recently, but I'm talking six seven months ago. Uh, did another article about this uh, about this particular hypothesis. Um, now that I take a good look at the uh, offending, shall we say, Triceratops, it's not just a neck though. What an absolute unit! That thing is so <laughs> overmuscled. <laughs> it is, it is exactly, but yeah. it's, it's it's muscled in the way that a cow is muscled, right? It's very mammalian muscles, I think. <laughs> beefy, yeah, prize cow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a beefy boy, for sure. Um, it does have that really intense um, herbivore horizontal pupil going on, it, it which does. adds to the freakiness. Yes, he's he's very fond of that idea. He um, also utilizes it on the hadrosaurs in particular. That's one of the ideas that aged better, I think. Yeah, and it's it's quite. It's very striking, especially as you see so few other um, reconstructions like this. I mean, I'm not saying these are the only ones, although certainly at the time, in, in particular, it would have been very unusual. Um, and again, it's harkening back to um, thinking of them in slightly more mammalian terms. Um, I mean, he does, at the same time, he does make a point of them not being mammals and does say um, they more like mammals in terms of their ecological niches only and he does say there would have been um i need to find the exact quote he would have said, said there would have been sort of strikingly different they would have been remarkably different to us not not that they would just have been like you know big cows or something or you know steroidal cows with horns far from it he does point out the differences so having got the uh, ceratopsians out of the way this this john mclaughlin character um who who is he is is he british is he american He's American, right? He's uh, so he published in America. I, I um, he is, I've got a little, yes. like, this little bio. Uh, a collaborator of Buckers? Uh, or just I don't a follower? think so. I probably should have. Yeah, a follower. I think. I mean, he's a, he's a zoologist and scientific illustrator. Because I, I do, I do have with me here my my copy of the Dinosaur Heresies, which um, which this predates. The Dinosaur Heresies came later. Um, is that so? Their their styles, in terms of their artistic styles, um, are quite similar. I think. Right, they are both extreme in 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 slightly different ways, but I I do think there is a, there is an artistic similarity as well as um, a similarity of ideas. It is, yeah. I mean, the feather theropods are the perfect example in how it's so far ahead of so much of the popular liter- literature at the time. Um, he, of course, endor- completely endorses the um, bird dinosaur link, and endorses the idea that certain small theropods may have been covered in, if not true feathers and these kind of fuzzy scale like frayed scales or the sort of or proto feathers obviously uh yeah. now we know we might actually have not gone far enough in many, many cases but back then it was pretty uh pretty radical stuff pretty heady um i mean seeing this it, okay it's an ornitholestes just covered in fuzz um obviously in here it's it's synonymized with silurus but it's it's ornithalestes yeah, <laughs> seeing that thing covered in fuzz in a book from the 1970s and seeing these i had to well i had to remind myself actually that it is from 1979 because um i had that sort of blase blase is probably not the correct word but just the sort of you know the unsurprised reaction to seeing a feathered dinosaur the way that i might do now looking at a modern book um, but then i had to recollect that hang on it's it's 1979 this is actually pretty yeah, remarkable i mean even more so because who else was doing this at the time? Exactly. Bucker wasn't. Greg Paul, I don't know. The, yeah. Louise Ray certainly wasn't. <laughs> no, that's a bit before his time, I think. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah. yeah, this is a step beyond what anyone else is doing. I mean, there's even a, a saltopus with, uh, with feathers on page 36, which um, is tearing some, some prey apart. And so, yeah, fuzzy saltopus, fuzzy coelophysis even. 
um, which is quite something. This is that's an idea that you know appeared in magazines in the 1990s as a sort of wacky what if? What if Cedar could have had fuzz? What a crazy idea! And yet here it is, you know, in this book from 79. Yeah. And again, with animals that look, the reconstructions look very modern, um, very horizontal, active poses, tail held straight out, and and they're not shrink wrapped either, um, as one might expect art from that time to be. I mean, if you look at the um, the beautiful head study of the Ornithalestes slash Cedarus. <laughs> It's uh, it's it's not shrink wrapped at all. It doesn't have sort of sunken a sunken face. It has a nice big eye, like a a good covering of fuzz that goes pretty much down to the almost the well down to the nostril really, the fleshy nostril. Yeah, that is particularly lovely. Yeah. Yes, a lot of people still hesitate to do that kind of thing. They still just want to keep the face completely bare or even put scales on the face. And no, he, here he's just got the fuzz going all the way down. I think mm. this is the stuff that we really should be remembering John McLaughlin for instead of the weird ceratopsis. I agree. Yes. yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I always point out to people when, whenever they bring up the, the ceratopsians and say, oh, well, it's a wacky idea. He it went, it went too far, didn't he? And I was like, well, have a look earlier on in, in that book and you'll see fuzzy sororithoides, um, fuzzy ornithodestes, fuzzy cedophysis in 1979 and all looking remarkably modern for that time. So I think it's instructive to compare this to stuff that's coming out in, in the 80s and even into the 90s that was nowhere near as forward thinking or daring. Weirdly, uh, the Dromaeosaur, well, um, Dromaeosaurus appears in here and it's completely naked. <laughs> ah, yes, Dromaeosaurus. Oh, well. <laughs> but, you, you know, talk about intense, that Dromaeosaurus. Yeah, it's, I'm not sure what it's doing to that carcass. It's stabbing it. <laughs> yeah, just, just sort of pierced it all the way through. <laughs> Stab. But, um, but I love the, love the muscles Look at on the that. eyes it's, on that thing. Look at the eyes on the Dromaeosaurus. It's it has these. It has such creepy eyes. It's like yeah, um, extremely. It's, it reminds me of like a Japanese oni mask or something. It, it just has those <laughs> super intense eyes. You are actually right, Niels. That's that's very true. Yes. I was going to say this is a great showcase of the pointillism sort of technique being employed. Um, please, um, Nati, correct me if I'm using the wrong terminology here. It is. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Mark. It is um, very much worth pointing out. Um, his technique, um, I mean, apart from everything else, his, his drawing technique, his style is very beautiful, I think. Um, I mean, there are two key techniques employed here. As you say, the, the pointillist one um, of the, the building up tone with a series of tiny dots and the crosshatched. Um, both of these, I think, are really very beautifully successfully done. There's not much else to add. He's obviously a, a very accomplished artist in those terms. Uh, a great example of the two techniques being employed on the, in the same piece is the Platyosaurus, where the one in the foreground has lots of cross-hatched sort of scales and patterns on it, and it's darker than the one in the background, which employs more pointillism. Yeah. Although the one in the foreground does in, um, have some pointillism on it as well, mainly on its sort of underside, where it's lighter, and then the darker... Um, top of the animal well, obviously it's, it's kind of counter shaded with some nice interesting stripes going on sort of a jagged stripy pattern and um almost like a kind of shark tooth well at the tail it's like a shark tooth pattern going down which is quite nice but yeah the the top side is this cross hatching mm. and then the underside uh, where it's lighter employs pointillism stippling it's just a cut stippling it's just occurred to me um it yeah stippling it, it, it is a a form of pointillism yeah so, but stippling in this case is more appropriate because it's uh, uh, it's drawn with a pen and ink rather than painted. Yeah, because it's because it's monochrome pen and ink. Mm -hmm. Exactly. G great patterning. It's be beautiful. If you if you don't if you don't work in color, the patterns become all the more striking. Yeah, that um, exactly. The Platyosaurus is probably the best one for that. As I said, just because of that um, saw pattern, that, uh, that that a jagged line going all the way along the length of the of the animal breaking it up which, looks, which again it's just, just monochrome but it, it looks uh it's very striking to look at in spite of that i mean the, the t-rex has a similar thing going on um t-rex is maybe not the best reconstruction overall in here it is great for the time in terms of again um horizontal posture tail well up in the air it's described lots as being of soft tissue on the face yeah lots of soft tissue on the face the face is kind of a weird shape and a bit small it sort of has an incongruously small head it's barely recognizable as t-rex for that reason no, although half of that is just the teeth are being covered up again. Um, and that's just because he's put sort of lizardy lips on it. Uh, you can see he's given, he's made some attempts at making the eye face forward. But yeah, the head, the head isn't 
particularly well yeah. done. It, it is strange for all the reasons you mentioned. The head is is almost canine, I think. Yeah. Um, mm. But but the curious thing is, for all its inaccuracy, I really do love this T Rex. I think it really is beautiful. I just like especially the way the legs taper away to something extremely bird like. And I, I mean bird-like to the extent that they're very fine, not just no, not just bird-like in terms of the uh, dinosaur and bird link, which is obvious. Yeah. But um, mm. but yeah, I I just love it for all those reasons. And yeah, what, what about what about sauropods in here then? Everyone loves sauropods, right? I do. We got um, sauropods. We got the most imposing-looking brachiosaur we've ever seen. <laughs> That's uh, it's it's muscular. It's very muscular. Oh, yeah. The uh, that forelimb. That's terrifying looking. <laughs> God, can you imagine? I mean, this maybe I don't think this is too muscular or not. Whether it's actually on the sort of more plausible side of how muscular well, it may be, or, or it, on the more extreme side rather. It seems to be a curious mixture, actually, because if you closed off its uh, hindquarters, it does look indeed very muscular. Um, but um, there is something going on in the torso that, that suddenly turns it into something slightly, uh, not exactly shrink-wrapped, but, uh, but much leaner. I mean, there is, there is a lot of fat there. Exactly. In either case, it looks as though there isn't much fat <laughs> beneath the skin. Um, and so you go from the heavily muscled uh, forelimbs to this uh, suddenly almost um, starving uh, brachiosaur in one image uh, it's it's quite curious and uh you know again just like uh, just like wayne barlow a couple of months ago um another brachiosaur that is kind of scary and terrifying and really not something you'd like to meet out in the open exactly which is good we need more scary looking sauropods not doe-eyed like oh it's just a big cow <laughs> oh how friendly and lovely like you can just walk up to it and give it a little give it a little pat on its on its elbow i guess because you couldn't reach any higher stomp um i mean talking about talking about things that were ahead of their time take a look at the page with the hadrosaurs with the hadrosaur heads i was hoping to bring that up yes i'm glad you mentioned the heads yeah because you see there um a comparison between two uh, possible reconstructions of an edmontosaur head where one is very skeletal and shrink-wrapped, and the other has a healthy amount of soft tissue on the face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, this is what I was saying. He based, apart from apparently the sauropods, he basically does get this right, and uh, he says, well, these things clearly had very big noses, <laughs> and they would have had a big fleshy nose and a big fleshy nostril on top. Um, that's how he restores them, which is how you can see it in his uh, one on the top left. And underneath you have the more sort of traditional lizardy one. I mean, he's also a big advocate of um, cheeks or pseudo cheeks, if you prefer. Yes. Like not mammalian cheeks, but kind of yeah. cheeky, cheekish, cheek-esque <laughs> tissue over the <laughs> teeth. Um, so, and, and he also he also in here points out, um, which I think um, that I Darren Nash has written a few articles about. Well, at least one article about this about um, hadrosaurs being called duck bills, and I didn't really have duck bills. He actually specifically mentions that it doesn't have a duck bill if you actually stick some, uh, you know, stick a keratinous sheath over the bill. So it doesn't have a duck bill anymore. Uh, it's just the skull. And so he does. He is an advocate for putting the correct amount of sort of soft tissue and flesh on these things, and um, I mean, occasionally possibly too much. That's in the case of the ceratopsians, yeah. way too much. <laughs> But, but yeah, these these are really these are really well done. I wonder um, if we could say a word or two about McLaughlin's text for this book. Um, his hypotheses aside, um, his prose, I think, is really quite a delicious read. Um, there was this one that you highlighted, Mark. Yes. Um, Perhaps amid the roar and crash of logging operations, the old forests recall the company of their vanished co-evolvers. The rich, warm, piney breath and gentle, stupid eyes of the sauropods seem so much more elegantly suited to these cathedral woods than the bully-whiskered presence of the woodsman, the screaming violence of his saw. I mean, come on, that's just brilliant, that's, isn't uh, it? That's wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lovely image. This uh, wonderful, yeah, wonderful romantic, and it, it actually—it's actually made me think now. When walking among pine trees, in particular, just looking up at them, and I, and I just think of that quote every time, like uh, just imagining the yeah. the sauropods there with their um, stupid eyes and their um, breath that smells like a car air freshener. Yeah, well, I may 
I may take exception to his description of the stupidity of sauropod eyes, <laughs> but you know, that aside, um, you know, that aside, you know, it, it's uh, it's beautiful, uh, really beautiful prose, I would say. I think it's time for us to stop treating this book and its artist and its author as a punchline. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, if if you are doing that, then you're um, you haven't seen anything beyond the. Ceratopsians, I think, because there's so much in here to love and uh, so much that's very far ahead of its time in many respects. And there's Asia very remarkably well. So. Um, for all of the artwork that's a bit off, um, there's a lot more in here that's aged incredibly well, far better than the vast majority of popular books. Yeah, in and the given 1970s. This, this precedes the dinosaur heresies, this precedes predatory dinosaurs of the world, this precedes all those big dinosaur renaissance works. And uh, I think John McLaughlin deserves all the credit for that. Right. <laughs> I agree. And even if you turn out wrong, and even if you turn out a little bit ridiculous with your wild speculations, at least you turn out interesting. And you will be remembered for many decades to come. <laughs> <laughs> for better or for worse. I believe it's fair to call our guest this month a rising Hollywood star, in terms of visual effects, that is. Cameron Clough is a pre-visualization artist and animator whose credits include some of the most popular properties in recent times, namely Star Trek Discovery, Game of Thrones and Marvel, as well as several paleo-related projects. His paleo art is a winning blend of the painterly, the graphic and the animated. He also finds time to sculpt both digitally and with physical materials, an artist very much with several strings to his bow. Cam, thank you so much for joining me and welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Great. Now, Cam, I feel as though I can already anticipate the answer to the first question, but since it is a requisite one, how did you come to be interested in paleontology? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very cliche to say Jurassic Park, but it was definitely <laughs> Jurassic Park. Uh, I mean, I watched those like like that three hour behind the scenes sequence that's narrated by James Earl Jones. And uh-huh. it was just all about like how they sculpted and made the animatronics and the animation for all the dinosaurs. And I was obsessed. And ever since then I've been sculpting and drawing and doing everything paleo and it's all James Earl Jones's fault. <laughs> was there any other, any other sort of media that, that had influenced you? Um, well, after that, it kind of evolved into like, prehistoric park and primeval sure. and the walking with dinosaurs series and all those different things and it's just been kind of like a spider web of, web of branching properties ever since then but uh yeah it was mainly like yeah mass media especially walking with dinosaurs because that really got me into it with like because they basically took Jurassic park and made it like just the dinosaurs you know yeah <laughs> so uh yeah and it, it and that also kind of like all of all of the above kind of influenced my like step into sculpting and then eventually animation yes yes i mean yeah as both you and i had anticipated it is it is a similar question to to many of our other guests um you know it's it's a very similar path especially um of a particular period i think yeah if it's not jurassic park it will be walking with dinosaurs or both um yeah so about your work then Um, What I especially love about your two-dimensional work, as I hinted at in the introduction, is your painterly use of color together with strong graphic line work, which nevertheless still feels organic. It's uh, that balance of just enough stylization while still being naturalistic without pretending or indeed wanting to be realist with a capital R, and, and I mean this as the sincerest compliment. Um, how did you arrive at your style? Would I would I be right in assuming that your training in concept art and animation played a significant part? Um, well, my style, I guess. So in, I guess I should go back to college a little bit because that's where I started like getting a lot more serious about art sure. and taking like art classes. And like I have like a animal anatomy class, class with like Bryn Metheny and RJ Palmer. Mm-hmm. And both of them, especially like, RJ taught me a lot about dinosaur anatomy. Brim taught me a lot about mammal anatomy. And they both showed me like other artists that I could aspire to, like especially Tara Whitlatch. And I feel like a lot of my like 
my line work and my like action and like like the animated poses that you're talking about i are very inspired by tara whitletch yes and i i kind of like incorporated both her almost like i don't want to say geometric but she has very hard lines a lot of the time Mm -hmm. and uh but they're still very like they're still very real but still stylized exactly like what you like he said earlier yeah so definitely tara whitletch was a huge inspiration for me but then like early before even that just i was very like part of the reason i even got into animation was because i was obsessed with like how to train your dragon and i, I don't know if you've seen of the course. concept art for that movie yeah. <laughs> it's very whimsical and stylized and hard lines but still like very graphic and the graphite-esque you know yeah yeah so yeah it's beautiful nico male one of my favorite uh character designers and uh, uh he worked uh on on how to train your dragon yeah yeah and and subsequently on the kung fu panda films which uh yeah which are among my most favorite from dreamworks i think and yes exactly as you say um all the qualities we were talking about and yeah, so you've already anticipated my next question, which was to ask if you had any key influences. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, RJ and Bryn, uh, Alexandra Nunakis, from, uh, she was a concept artist on The Last of Us 2, and she's a big horse girl, and we're, we're pretty good friends now because of that. Yes. But uh, she, yeah, uh, she's definitely like her very... Like I don't, I don't even understand. Like it's not concept; it's more storybook illustrations, mm-hmm. but realistic storybook illustrations in a way that's just like so effortless. I really like. I've been trying to learn to paint more like that, just because she inspires me so much. Yes, of course. So, Cam, one of your earliest professional paleo projects was, I think, while you were still in college, and it was under the supervision of none other than Dr. Jack Horner himself. Uh, I understand that the project itself is yet unannounced, but can you tell us more about this, as much as you're allowed to? Um, I can, yeah, I can give you the premise, I guess, but, uh, it's essentially this hologram traveling museum experience that, uh, yeah, it's kind of thanks to the pandemic, everything's kind of been shuffled around. Of course. But uh, basically, it's like a walk-in museum experience that you can experience life in the past. Yeah. And that was the, like something that you could feasibly like interact, well, not like interact, interact, but like walk through and interact with. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 going to be really cool uh when it comes out so i'm looking forward to seeing how people respond to it and and what was your part in it what uh what were you commissioned for i was commissioned to design the uh i think it was is it six dinosaurs maybe eight uh well six dinosaurs and one pterosaur i think is what it, if i remember the number correctly and it's hell creek so i bet you can imagine who they are <laughs> of course yes <laughs> That's wonderful. And uh, are you allowed at all to share any of, of this artwork that you made? Uh, I don't... It's very ambiguous, so I'm not entirely sure if I can. Right. But, yeah. Uh, so for now, I'm going to have to probably say no. Okay. Maybe in the future I'll be allowed to. Sure. The, well, the only reason I asked was if, um, if you were allowed, then... Uh, we wanted to ask your permission to put some of them uh, onto our show notes um, because I really do think from what I saw whilst you were doing, uh, well, whilst it was in progress, um, I think they're really beautiful and uh, and, it, oh, thank and you. I just think they, they would be lovely to be seen. But but if you're not, then we'll, we'll, we'll showcase some of your, your many, many other works, I'm sure. Huh. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, and what was what was Jack Horner like to work with? Uh, Jack Horner, he is okay. He is one of the most opinionated people I've ever met. I mean that in the nicest way. Uh, <laughs> he uh, he still comments on my Instagram posts about like the accuracies of any like dinosaur I ever draw. Oh right, and uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny. But uh, he's 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 very genuine and he's very like straightforward. Like he doesn't he 
especially as an artist when you're working with a paleontologist i have like a feeling that sometimes like they're like it's either they are too direct and straightforward and they don't really consider like the work involved yeah or they kind of skirt around it and they let you get away with things that like wouldn't otherwise be accurate if this was for paleo art you know mm-hmm. so uh i feel like horner was a lot more the former than the latter <laughs> yes. but but I learned a lot from him, especially about his whole, uh, like, his hypothesis on, like, Toroceratops and, like, T-Rex ontogeny and all of that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, he, I mean, he was, he made uh, Hell Creek a thing with all the Triceratops that he found. So, because I think he found, like, 70 Triceratops skulls alone by himself or something. Gosh. Yeah. Incredible. And then, you know, all the Mysore work, but yeah. Yeah. Hell Creek was, yeah, yeah. Hell Creek was his big thing in Toroceratops and kind of learning his reasoning for that was interesting because, like, obviously, like, that's kind of a heated topic in the community. Of course. But uh, it's interesting to see, like, how an actual paleontologist proceeds and not just a random person yelling at you online, you know? Sure. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I don't don't know a great deal about his reputation but but you know you hear things uh you 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 hear things on on the grapevine when you're in the community and and it's it it does seem to align with with what i have been hearing um certainly the opinionated part yeah (laughs) he yeah he's 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 very fiery and it's 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 kind of refreshing because like you can kind of just like see oh this is exactly what he wants and it makes it easy in that way. Yes. But then, like, when you have, like, an artistic vision of something, and it kind of, like, he kind of forces it to change pretty abruptly, it can be, like, a little, like, you know, upsetting. Like, if you're working on a commission and someone's like, oh, I don't like this completely, do something else. It's of like, course. okay, you have to kind of take the hit and move on. But yeah. when you move on, you do it in a way that's unexpected and interesting and beautiful. And it was great. Well, that's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you've been able to uh, to work with that. Um, yeah, because it's sometimes, as you said earlier, it is very hard um, for an artist. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you, you do feel a little chagrined when somebody comes in you know, with bombast and tells you that, you know, you, you can't do this or that and the other. Um, and, and it feels like, you, you know, you're being treated less like an artist and more like a screwdriver <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Yeah your tool and less a uh, person you know uh-huh. yeah but yes i mean yeah i'm glad that you were able to 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 work with that and actually resolve with something that you're both happy with and as you said yeah yeah that was my first big concept working or any like big commission i think i've ever done and i did it while i was working on my senior animated senior thesis project for my college graduation <laughs> and it was of course it, yeah, it was a lot of it was a lot of work, yeah. but it was a lot of like it was very constructive for me as an artist to have that experience, but then also like be able to say like I worked with Jack Horner, who was a paleontolo- uh, paleontologist for Jurassic Park, and like it's a it's a cool little stamp on the resume, you know? Oh, exactly. Yes. Yeah, you were thrown in at the deep end right from the first, basically. <laughs> yeah. All right now. Let's talk a little about your animation and your 3D work, your, the work that you're doing now, essentially. Um, last year, you worked as, as junior animator on John Favreau's paleo documentary series with uh, no less than the BBC's Planet Earth crew. Um, can you tell us more about this? I cannot talk about anything with the project itself. Just know that it's coming sometime soon oh not don't take that any other way but yeah i can't really it's it's very um hush hush oh right okay so there goes yeah. so there goes one of my questions then <laughs> yeah i wish i am like i am everyone is itching for a new modern paleo documentary and i, I just gotta keep telling everyone that this is it just hold out and wait for it i promise it will be worth it all right uh, okay well in that case uh i feel as a the answer to the next question will probably be the same um well because i was going to ask from one paleo documentary series to another um you're working on one right now 
this time with um, Max Bologna. Yes. Yeah. This is, yeah, mu there's much less NDA, so I can actually talk about this. Oh, one. that's wonderful. So, all right then. Um, I believe this one is about the, the Miocene agate fossil beds. Yes. Uh, well, I'm an animator. Uh, me, uh, Max Bolomio, and John, he's also known as Synopsis Online, are the three animators for the series. Uh, there has been a teaser released on YouTube of the uh, Meropis and their calf and the uh, Deodon. And yeah, I... Uh, it's been great. Max is, I mean, Max, can you believe it? Is like 17 years old and freaking running paleo like Twitter and paleo like reconstructions. It's insane. I think I'm going to faint. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very weird being a 24 year old man in a professional industry working for a 17 year old that pays me like like an industry person. I don't, I, I think he like murdered someone in his past life or something. But Max is like the greatest guy. Like he's just like, he's amazing to work with. He he gives amazing critique. He has a great vision. Like every single, like we have like Minia Diallo and like a bunch of other like amazing artists. There was like Drew Franklin doing like a bunch of storyboards and designs for the series. I designed the uh, Parahippus, which is the Inky Theory horse from the Miocene. Cause you know, mm -hmm. I got to do the horse. Of course. And um, yeah, it's, it's just been fantastic. And uh, we're just working on a like you know final pitch and with animation for that and that is our big push right now for the summer uh, I've done a lot of Deodon work and a lot of Stenomylus work which is like a prehistoric camel and it's just been it's been a really great really like artist positive project because like Max understands that I work full time and John also works and is in college and Max is about to go to college and which is weird to say, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's been like very like just, Oh, just like take care of yourself. I know you're working overtime all the time, like do what you can. And it's been like one of the best animating experiences I've had. So I'm really happy to be on the project and the project, like I'm sure you've seen like the renders and the clips and some of the animation that I've released and yes, it's just, it's shaping up to be amazing. Yeah. So. It, it, from what I have seen, it does look uh, pretty amazing. Something very much to whet our appetite. Um, I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around, as you say, the fact that Max is 17. Um, yeah. Though, he's just, he's not very open about that. No. <laughs> and it's just like insane. Yeah. I cannot begin to imagine a 17 year old uh, essentially directing a documentary series and, and hiring. And animating and also being an animator for a kingdom. Precisely. Like... <laughs> yeah. And doing all of these things. And he's got himself essentially a, a, a who's who roster of artists, you know, you among them. I'm, I, this is astonishing to me. Um, well, I think there's very little else to say other than we can't wait to see this. <laughs> yeah it is definitely the next generation of walking with beasts and i'm really excited for everyone to see it yeah it sounds so. amazing all right well with uh the last two questions in mind then uh you are perhaps well placed to answer this cam as an industry professional at the moment um paleo related media specifically of the animated kind um with an uncynical interest in accuracy and in presenting prehistoric animals as animals and which are aware that there is demand for these things, uh, seem to be finding more ground in documentaries and in video games or in television than in mainstream cinema. Uh, my question is, do you think you can foresee an eventual growth in the latter, one which perhaps isn't dominated by a particular franchise. Okay, are we gonna sh are we gonna are we gonna talk about that franchise? Because I, I I I'm sure you've seen the stuff that's come out recently. Uh, yes, I have, and some of the let's call them discussions that have arisen. Yeah. <laughs> well, you may as well. Um... Okay, because I feel like that's important. Because, of course, like it's 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 started like almost everyone I've known, like their descent into paleontology. You know, yeah, yeah, and exactly. Jurassic World is obviously something a little bit different than the virtual uh, trilogy, but I feel like, especially with this opening sequence, I think people are going to be a little bit surprised if you haven't seen it already, and uh, and like with the 
Fast and Furious 9 promo thing, five-minute clip thing. But, uh, yeah, like, with, like you said, video games like Saurian and Prehistoric Kingdom and with Forgotten Bloodlines and with, like, Prehistoric Planet, I feel like, especially, like, writing on the coattails or even coming a lot, like, concurrent with Jurassic World Dominion and their kind of half interest in uh paleon like paleontology and you know like with that opening sequence i feel like i feel like we're starting like that second paleo renaissance that jurassic park started especially with like how accessible modern cg is like like a 17 year old in, in texas can just start a documentary project and actually get a bunch of artists working on it <laughs> and it looks industry quality and like that's what you can do now and there's people doing like roblox video games with like what's uh aj uh paleo doodles on twitter yeah uh i don't he is like a sculptor for roblox and it's like paleo accurate like kalinkin and quaggas and smilodon and <laughs> everything and it's like if a freaking free-to-play Roblox game can get a paleo, like paleo accurate like roster of Cenozoic mammals, it's it's very easy and very very possible for multiple projects to come up and come out with paleo accurate things. Especially since Jurassic World is almost leaning into it a little bit, and John Favreau, you know Iron Man and MCU man, is doing a paleo documentary. <laughs> so. I, I feel like it's inevitable that there's going to be kind of a resurgence of people wanting to explicitly try to be paleo accurate. And I mean, to their extent, Jurassic World did try to do that with this recent thing. They yeah. maybe, they, maybe they weren't the most successful, but they tried. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I feel like that says something. Yeah. So you're, you're optimistic. I'm very optimistic yeah. because I've just seen like, I, all these people like RJ, Mitty, like, max like the entire soaring team jake bards like pk all these people i've known for like even you i've known through five, for five or six years through like all this like recent like paleo media resurgence yes and like i think all of us being together and collaborating and making these projects that we want to make with like they are definitely competent sculptors and animators and filmmakers and like vfx artists out there that want to be a part of that so I, I don't think it's i think it's there's a very very high chance that we will see a lot of stuff coming out soon so yes no that that does sound quite promising so back to your 2d work then um you've been researching and illustrating prehistoric courses a good deal recently uh some yes. some of our listeners will know i think that apart from dinosaurs you and i also share a passion for horses um i know that the the subject is a vast one but without turning this into a horse girl fest which much as i would <laughs> as much as i would love this i know that my co-hosts would never countenance it so um can you tell us uh, a sort of overview of what your key discoveries were? The the takeaway, if you like, on prehistoric horses. Oh, you're talking to me as I have an entire wall of rare model horses that I've collected and sculpted for the last <laughs> 10 years. But okay. Um, yeah, well, paleo horses, I mean, my favorite is Equisferis. And I know like that's technically not a paleo horse because Equisferis is still around. But I'm talking about the uh, ancestor of all modern horses, Equisferis, aka like what looks and acts exactly like a Shavalsky's horse, but isn't a Shavalsky's horse. And uh, how they came in like every color under the sun, basically. And people seem to think that like all paleo horses are striped quaggas. Right. Or, uh, or done Shavalskis and there's like no in between. And actually there's probably a lot more than just stripes and done. Mm -hmm. And for people out there that aren't horse freaks, the, the color of a Shavalskis horse is done. So just keep that in mind. But um, basically like Echoes Ferris, like especially with the recent research that came out about like how they essentially took over the world and were on every continent, but like Antarctica <laughs> uh, horses kind of took over for a lot of the Cenozoic and, I just think it's really interesting, like the evolution, like how there's not really a lot of modern paleo art that kind of shows them as we know them. A lot like any of the Sinkakin and like a bunch of other people will do like paleo art horses and they're great. And uh, But Ville doesn't really do color that much. He's doing a lot of pencil work. But my point is like a lot of people don't really lean into the color genetics of horses or even like kind of 
like adopt what we know from science already because yeah. like we know that like equiseris was like in like paleolithic cave art at like the caves in france i can't say it the caves in france is it Lachaux? is that how you say it um uh, let's go let's go yeah. and um like there's been like evidence of leopard spotted horses there like appaloosa horses but the correct term is leopard spotted yes and there's multiple pieces of cave art and genetic like they've genetically tested like grave sites of horses where they've been like black and bay and done and leopard spotted done and yes. striped and like they can there's so many different colors because everyone thinks that modern horse colors are just like a recent thing when actually it's pretty ancient to them and i like to kind of push that further and i've done like hippie dion in south america and i've talked with like hippie dion researchers and i've done like parahippus and I've worked like I've talked to like Midi Midi uh, Diallo was on this old project called Panthus where they're trying to reconstruct like South American Cenozoic mammals and stuff. Yeah, and I talked to him a lot about Hippie Dion and like a lot of people don't take advantage of the fact that these horses probably like yeah like they probably weren't leopard spotted but they probably had like more colors than just done or they just weren't quagga representations and quaggas were like tropical and they were only like near the equator and a lot of citizen horses weren't on the equator so they wouldn't be striped and it's just interesting how like for me one of my main interests being paleo horses is that like there's so much knowledge there and research and like like already established like okay we know like this is how this horse was looking this is where it was mm -hmm. and this is what it could be genetically possible and a lot of people haven't really taken advantage of that so it's been very very cool to be like one of the people that's been like spreading like this is how horses migrated this is how they evolved this is how their color looks this way and it's it's been really really fulfilling for me yeah i can easily imagine that and it's been just as lovely for me to see it and and i i am probably one of the you know I'm uh, giving myself a very bad horse girl reputation in that i haven't delved into it exactly as you've been saying um so yeah, it's it's been wonderful to see personally as well, and to realize that you know a good friend uh, with shared interests is is actively doing this and imparting all this information. Yeah, and it's been great working with like Dr. Paleo Win on Twitter. I, I'm sure you guys have seen her around. Yes, but uh, she's like an equine researcher out of Southern California, and like it's just been great talking with her and working with her and like getting her like feedback on reconstructions in a way that's like artist friendly. And she's also very like aware of like, you know, how to interact with artists and like how to get her visions across in a respectful, in a respectful way. And it's been this like really good relationship with her. And yeah, it's just, it's just really fun. Like spreading knowledge about horses to not even like just paleo people, but to like horse people themselves exactly. that don't really know that like a lot of these things were kind of rooted in, uh, like prehistoric horses like yeah a lot of people don't know that leopard and Appaloosa horses are actually one of the most prehistoric horses mm -hmm. or there's like a population of all black horses in spain that all evolved from equisteris independently like it's 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 amazing yeah um cam it's been a real pleasure your casmazor's passport is stamped uh you know that i'm a huge fan of your work and of course i look forward to seeing your future developments in all directions Thank you again so much for your time and good luck in everything. Uh, thank you too. I, this is a lot of fun. I'm excited to see more horses and dinosaurs from you. They are whimsical and amazing and pudgy and wonderful. So <laughs> thank you so much, Cam. So thank you uh, to our horse girls. It was uh, really entertaining. And thank you to uh, Nati and Cam for. Uh, giving me a relatively easy job of editing that uh well done and uh yeah i i was i was more invested in the prehistoric horses than i thought i would be very nice. that's good to know soon be converting many others i still don't see how you look at a horse and go like yeah you know what i'm gonna sit on that but there you go me neither they're weird uh, i think this this has to happen someday post-covid if possible <laughs> no well i'll try it i'll try anything once i'll try anything well. once I can, I can try. Well, Mark, Nati, thank you very much for potting with me. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> and, uh, well, hopefully we'll see you all again next month. 
Thank you very much for tuning in. And uh, thank you once again to our Patreons. Uh, go check us out at patreon.com slash LITC. And as ever, you can watch uh, all the images we've discussed and uh, all the links to all the papers we've discussed on the show notes at our blog, chasmosaurus.com. Thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurus. Our blog can be found at chasmosaurus.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurus. If you want to give us your support, please leave a review of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We also have a Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash LITC. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, wear a mask, and we hope to see you again soon.